Agile Podcast. I am your host, Shaheen, and today I have a very renowned guest, uh, Diana Larson. I had the pleasure of um, learning from her through her books and meeting her in one of the Agile Alliance conferences. She's an author, she's a speaker, she's a keynote speaker. I won't do the justice describing her and telling you guys about her. So um, I'm going to let her do the introduction. Um, hi, Diana. Thanks for joining us on the, on the podcast. Hi, Shaheen. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us who is Diana. Ah, okay. Well, in this context, in the Lean on Agile context, I am um, a person who's been in the Agile community for a very long time. I first knew about Agile methods and started thinking and talking about them in about 1999, 2000 and have been part of the community ever since. I've written a few books, uh, Agile Retrospectives and Liftoff. And more recently, I have been uh, involved with the Agile Fluency Project uh, because of an article that I wrote with James Shore called the Agile Fluency Model. And we are now, after many years of me doing my, being a coach, an Agile coach and consultant, and a mentor to many folks. We now have a service where we do training for Agile coaches. So I bring all the things that I learned as an Agile coach and the ways to be effective as an Agile coach um, to other to help other folks uh, enlarge their practices and and just kind of level up their ability to help other folks. Yeah. So. In one or two words, if you want to call yourself anything, give yourself a title, would be the Agile Fluent person? Um, well, Agile Fluency is one of the things, mostly through, through my whole career in the Agile right. community, the fo- thing I have been focused on is team learning, team how learning. teams learn and improve. Mm-hmm. And so that's retrospectives, that's liftoffs and Agile chartering, that's the Agile Fluency model. That's right. that thread goes through all those things. Right. So I'm a lifelong learner, and I uh, encourage other folks in their group and individual learning as well. I want to take this conversation two different directions. You talked about teamwork, and I want to uh, ask you about teams and tell us what a team is. Mm-hmm. And then you you said that you're a lifelong learner. I want to ask you what you're learning right now. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's up to you which one to answer first. Well, what I'm learning right now because of the current state of the world is I am diving deeply into how to set the best conditions for people to learn through remote and online um, channels. And so looking for all of the tips and techniques I can discover that are you know, create a good environment for people to learn when they can't be face-to-face and uh, engaged, you know, interpersonally with each other directly. Um, Everything's got to be mediated by Zoom or other kinds of video conferencing tools and other kinds of online tools that people are using like Miro and Mural and and various ones. And so uh, I'm learning as much as I can about how to make that a rich learning environment so that's, that's where my learning edge is right now. 
and also how to help my business survive yeah. <laughs> in this climate. That's the other other piece of learning I'm yeah. doing right now. Um, but in terms of teams, um, I have always had an affinity for people, humans in groups. Um, mm -hmm. People used to, I mean, I occasionally will act as a mentor for someone, but I'm not really well suited to be an individual coach or, but I'm very well suited to coach um, organizations and teams because I, I just, I resonate with that, that systemic idea of people in groups together and how a really well-functioning group team or an organization is greater than the sum of its parts it brings it mm. brings that idea of synergy that was been bounced around for a while but uh, the interactions between and among people are mm. create a richness that just would not be there otherwise and so so i'm fascinated by that and fascinated by how groups learn as opposed mm -hmm. to individual learning, which is also interesting. I'm very interested in my own learning, but mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by how groups learn and develop co-intelligence and um, how they can most effectively, how the members of a group can most effectively rely on each other to reach their common goals. I would assume that working with groups or teams and coaching them is much more complex than individuals. Is that a correct assumption? Um, I don't know if it's a correct assumption. It's it's different. It I think people who are ex very experienced uh, leadership coaches, executive coaches, ther therapeutic social workers, or or, or um, counselors. I, I mean, I think the human psyche is. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a very deep and complex thing. And so I would not say necessarily that groups are more complex than that, but they are, they are complex in a different way right. because you, the, the interactions between the parts for one thing are clearer. And uh, if you know how to look, I mean, for an individual, the interactions that are going on inside a person are very hard to discern. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly their emotions and things, but in a in a group you can begin to see patterns of interactions and patterns of exchanges between and among the members of the group, and um, and then also the other parts of the system, which include their surroundings and their environment and mm -hmm. and everything else. So it's a it, it's just a different approach. True, and I would assume that based on these recent events, and now we are working remotely, um, working with groups is gonna make harder to work with them because everyone is in there sitting, seeing them. It's not in a, in right. a, in a group setting, if I may say. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know that it is objectively harder, okay. but I will say, I think we have been more habituated Mm -hmm. to working with people that we can be with physically in the same space. And that's the, those, for most of us, those are the habits and the techniques and the routines that we have developed. And now we are faced, those of us who do want to work with teams and organizations and groups, we are faced with learning what are the things that are effective 
in those situations um, as opposed to taking the things that we have been doing in person and then just trying to cram them into the online remote space right. and try to make them work in the same way, which they really won't. It, it's a new situation mm -hmm. and it's going to take new approaches and new uh, new ways of thinking about it. I mean, I, I always like to say, um, you know, for people who are like natural food people, there's this thing about, you know, well, you could, you could have chocolate with its chocolate and its sugar and its fats and everything that's in it, you know, or you could have this carob thing. And if you try to take carob and substitute it for chocolate, it's never going to be the same. But if you appreciate carob for being carob and just deal with it for, for its properties and, and tastes and purposes, then it can be a perfectly enjoyable thing, right? So it's, it's matching fit for purpose is basically what we're looking mm -hmm. for. I don't expect carob to be chocolate, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I don't expect the tools that I use yeah in person with teams to necessarily be the same tools that are going to work when I'm working with teams online. So uh, this is very um, interesting for me to, to know. Was there any a turning point in your career that you figured out that you want to work with groups and focus on group dynamics versus one-on-one? -on -one? Like how did you got to this point that you focus on organization and teams? Yeah, well, um, I think that I, I don't think there was a turning point. I think it's always been a part of me. I've always mm -hmm. liked being a, a working collaboratively uh, as more than working on my own. Um, I like using visual tools to um, engage with folks. So I like, um, uh, I, you know, I'm sure there are personality style reasons and things for this, but it was, I didn't, I didn't recognize that that's where my main talents lie until I was probably in my 40s. Uh, and I really understood the difference that, you know, that there were folks who saw the world differently than me and right. who had an affinity for, much more of an affinity for working individually uh, whereas I, I, you know, I like being in a training situation. I like being in a coaching situation. I like facilitating open space events. Um, I just, I, and it's because I like seeing the patterns. It's like mm -hmm. uh, watching people in a ballroom dancing together. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, you know, I also appreciate a single person dancing, but mm -hmm. My heart goes to seeing yes. a group of people right. moving right. together in the space. Right. So, do, do you have any um, failure stories or horror stories about something that might have gone very wrong in a group setting that you were part of or you were coaching or you were consulting? Um, not really. I mean, there are... I, I think it's all in how you look at things. Um, there are there certainly have been situations where um, I was hoping that one kind of thing would happen, and it turned out that something very different happened. <laughs> but mm -hmm. um, I've been doing 
uh, open space events long enough that I have actually pretty much integrated the idea that whatever happens is the only thing that could, that when we mm -hmm. are in complex systems, there is going to be emergent properties. Uh, things are going to come up that we don't expect and may not be prepared for. And all that we can do is be prepared to be resilient and flexible in those situations. So um, I, I'm, I am actually trying to think of an instance where, uh, you know, a, a, I, it's usually I just, I flex with the group. If, mm -hmm. if, it's, if things aren't going the way I thought they were gonna go, then I ask the group, well, what way do you want to go? And then that's, right. and then I bring my skills to helping them do what they need to do. So I think the horror stories and the uh, oftentimes can come from wanting things to be a different way than ha mm -hmm. how they are. Right. And uh, for me, that's never been very effective. <laughs> Right. if I try to stick with wanting things to be right. different than they are. Right. So I try to stay in touch with kind of the reality of the situation. Right. So, uh, so, uh, so here's a, here's an example. Um, I was working with a group of folks, uh, a large department of folks, and um, they, they had, had been dealing with a lot of small conflicts that became big conflicts, conflicts between and among the different teams. It was an IT department. And so we decided that we would all get together and we would have just do some training and do some a session about what are some techniques that we can use when we're faced with these conflicts? How can we move through them? And so the day came when we were going to have this event and uh, the different teams showed up and they sat in table groups according to their teams, which is what I wanted them to do. And I started to bring out the material that I had prepared for them to, you know, do some different things and do some practice sessions, some role playing, different, different things to look at the nature of the conflicts that came up for them and so on. And I could just tell that everything I was talking about had, was hitting a wall. Mm -hmm. It was like the, nobody was engaged. No, nobody was, you know, wanted to do any of the things that I was bringing to them. And so I just stopped and I said, you know, tell me what's going on. And it turned out that a couple of days before when I had worked with their boss and we had put the final touches on this. In the meantime, and over the course of the next day, there had been an announcement made that the entire department was going to be outsourced and some people were going to still have their jobs, but they would have to work for this outsourcing company and mm -hmm. other people were just going to be laid off. And here they all were in this room in a conflict training Right, right, that nobody wanted to be in at that point, mm -hmm. right? So I just said, well, this is, you know, it's stupid to continue to do this. Let's mm -hmm. talk about what's, go what's happening for you and, mm -hmm. and let's figure out how you can, how you, can um, you know, bring what you know and how you know how to be to bear so that you can, you can move through this 
surprising and unexpected situation, an announcement uh, in the best possible way. And so we spent about an hour and a half kind of talking through their issues with that. Mm -hmm. And then somebody said, well, no matter where we go, we're going to need conflict tools. So can, tell us what you were going to do with this. And so then we just smoothly went back into right. the, you know, I decided which, which activities were going to be right. worthwhile doing that day and which ones weren't. And so we finished out the day and they, they were happy and went on their merry way. But it was a day that went very different than I expected it mm -hmm. to. But yeah. I wouldn't say it was a horror story. It was a very yeah. successful day in the end. Yeah. yeah. But it so required if, everyone to be flexible and, and resilient. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if I can say, I think your superpower, the way that you described it, is facilitation. You felt the room, you've, you talked, you saw the process was not working, and then you talked about it instead of right. ignoring that. So, right. Um, yeah, awesome. A yeah. true facilitator. Um, <laughs> Thank you. So you mentioned that um, you are um, in agile space for the longest time, like um, yes. 1999. What excites you about agile? What um, or what keeps you excited about agile these days? Yeah. Well, before um, before I met the people I met that influenced me to kind of move this direction, uh, the work I was doing at that point in the late 80s and through the 90s was work process redesign. So I would go into mostly technical organizations and that were that had a, a some kind of a work process flow that wasn't working very well for them, that somebody decided their boss or somebody. And they would ask me and, and some colleagues to come in and help them redesign their work process so that they would get the more of the outcomes that they wanted. And inevitably, because I was working in, in technical organizations, high-tech manufacturing, engineering organizations, IT organizations, every all of the work that people were doing was very much knowledge work i mean they were no one was i wasn't working with people who were digging ditches really i mean even the manufacturing people i was working with were doing highly skilled uh elect you know electronic parts and and uh, equipment that that needed them to be it what they weren't just a pair of hands they needed mm -hmm. to be thinking all the time about what they were doing and so what we would do is come in and work with people to understand, to help them understand their current workflow. We did things like what we call now value stream analysis and those kinds of things with folks. And then we gave them some principles around, you know, you want a high quality of work life and you want to be close to your customer and you want, um, you want, um, to have deliver a high quality product and you know so some of those principles that they all agreed to and then we worked with them so that they redesigned their work mm -hmm. so that it made more sense to them and that it could be more of a flow every single time and we did not go in with this uh end in mind but every single time folks decided that what the way they needed to work was in cross-functional self-organizing teams. Right. And so I had a 10 years of experience doing that, uh, more than 10 years experience doing that. And then I happened to be an event where there were some uh, folks from the extreme programming community and, and a 
couple of the other communities that came into the agile space and um, we started talking and I started asking them some questions about, well, so when they were doing teams, how were they doing them? And they were telling me about it. And we just discovered a real affinity for each other. Right. Um, there was a time in my life when I thought I was going to be uh, a systems analyst. Mm -hmm. So I thought I was going to be more in the software world. And, and, but then I, things happened and I went a different direction. But so I, I felt a strong affinity to what was, what these, um, what the folks were doing. And uh, eventually they, you know, we all went up to Snowbird and they decided to call it Agile. Mm -hmm. But, but by that time I was already hooked because I could, I could see that the skills that I had developed over those previous 10 years could be helpful in mm -hmm. this space and and that it would be interesting work for me so it was it was just a good match what is beyond agile like what do you think is there anything beyond that um i don't know if it has a name yet um okay. i i like a lot of what uh folks are doing i mean i like joshua karyovsky's modern agile mm -hmm. i like uh what yuta Eckstein and john buck are doing with the bossa nova the beyond, uh, beyond budgeting, open space, sociocracy, and agile mashup. I like um, some of the stuff that Alistair Coburn is talking about in the heart of agile. I mean, there's right. a bunch, there's a lot of interesting people looking at the agile space right now and looking at what needs to come next in the agile space right now. And no one, no one has really coalesced on one name, but I think what's interesting about it is that after 20 years of methodologies being in conflict with each other, right. you know, is XP better, is Scrum better, is Safe better, is Less better, is, you know, that there's been all this kind of competitive methodology space right. that now we are moving into a time where Agile Fluency, the Agile Fluency model and the way we think about things and Bossa Nova, and modern agile and all of those things are highly complementary. Mm -hmm. There, there is nothing about them that says if you're doing modern agile, you could not also use a lens of agile fluency for that, or vice mm -hmm. versa. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is a direction that I see agile going. And of course, another direction that agile is going is the whole idea of agility and business mm -hmm. agility and sort of spreading some of the ideas of agile outside of software which i think is interesting because from my point of view of course a lot of the things that we think of as agile were already happening in the 90s outside of software because i was there doing some of them right. <laughs> doing self-organizing cross-functional teams and right. working in small bites and staying close to the customer right. and that those aren't new ideas those i those are ideas that have been around for quite a long time but I think I think the term agile was brilliant because it is enabling this idea of the shift into agility and uh, for, you know, for use in the broader business in a way that uh, wasn't happening necessarily before. So, I, right. you know, I don't I don't know for sure where it's headed. I think I think we are on particularly with the way millennials um, seem to be participating in the workplace. Um, I think we are headed for 
a, a, a more humane workplaces. Mm -hmm. um, the Agile Alliance a few years ago said in their purpose statement, productive, humane, and sustainable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that is an, an effort to sort of optimize those three qualities of, you know, we're going to, we're going to make sure that we have the things we need because we're going to produce those, but we're going to do that in a way that is, uh, that recognizes the humans involved and that is sustainable both for the business and the environment that right. the business is in. So I, you know, I think, I think. Uh, the arc of history is moving more in that direction, but of course right. it's kind of a bumpy ride getting yeah, there. It's a very bumpy ride right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and right now yeah. it's particularly bumpy. And so that's, what's, that's, what's fascinating though, about right. this, everyone working from home and, and social distancing and because mm. people have a need for touch. Right. People have a need to breathe each other's air. Um, and how that's i'm i'm really curious about how that is going to continue to manifest itself and if it will look very different mm -hmm. I, you know there is no going back there is no right. we're not ever returning to any sort of previous normal yeah. um, but what we are going to do is create some new world and i'm really curious to see what that is going to look like and what its attributes will be. So for our newer um, audiences um, or audiences newer to Agile, mm -hmm. um, what are your um, recommendations for them in this board? I, you know, there have been, I think one of the interesting things is that new things have been, not just new methodologies, but other kinds of new practices have been um, coming on board. I think the, the movement toward, um, you know, I mean, the, the movement from single programmer to pair programmer to pair programming to self-organizing teams and now into actual mob programming, I think that's a really interesting journey that, that those ideas are taking and that, that the in, ever-increasing uh, collaboration uh, that, that, that that shows is, is really interesting. I think the, and so I would have people pay attention to that. If there are lots and lots of places where there are mob programming events where you can just go and, you know, sit in and see, because anybody can participate uh, in that. And, um, and it's, and I think it's kind of fun and um, entertaining in a way, if you like, you know, writing code. So, so that's a, that's uh, a thing. I mean, I would look for opportunities to participate in these things. Look for opportunities to participate in open space conferences. Mm -hmm. I think open space conferences are, uh, for one thing, they're, they're tend to be pretty accessible. They're uh, usually, if they're in person, they're regional. Now mm -hmm. I'm seeing some opportunities for online open space conferences popping up. And being involved in those, those are a great place to be introduced to both old and new ideas. Mm. Uh, so you can get a good overview of Agile in, in those kinds of events. Mm. Um, I, you know, m my love is this whole idea of continuous learning and continuous improvement. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it can continuous learning that leads to continuous improvement. Those those things are connected. And so, you know, learning as much as you can about retrospectives and some of the Toyota Kata methods and all of these these ways that help groups of people with their reflection and learning and and then using that learning to make things better for themselves, make their product better, make, you know, make their relationships, their working relationships better. Those are all things I think that are really worth looking at and and getting comfortable with there not being checklists and checkboxes. Mm-hmm. I think we are moving out of the world where mm-hmm. um, certain kinds, I mean, I think there are places where checklists are hugely valuable the whole the whole idea of the checklist manifesto that Atul Gawande wrote about about you know making sure that people are washing their hands and you know that there are there are certain things that you really do need to do pilots in a in a cockpit there are certain things you really need to do but you want that to be in in service of you not in service of the checklist right i mean there's something there and um and I, a big mistake I see people make a lot is when they choose tools, online tools, mm-hmm. for particularly managing their backlogs or uh, doing those kinds of things. They end up letting the tool use them instead of figuring out how they can use the tool to best serve their purpose. So I'm, I'm, you know, very much, I, I'm wary of those things, and I hope people will will be more careful and not just accept kind of in whole cloth. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, we have this tool, so we must do these things right. because this tool does all these things. Right. I like um, how you use the term, the tool use them because I yeah. see that very much. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. this tool is designed this way, then we are going to shape yeah. our work that way and we are going to do that because we don't right. have anything else in that tool. Yeah. Right, right. right. Okay. Yeah. So the, those are all things I think I would be, if I were new, I would, I, or if I were talking to new people, I would want them to be wary of. And, mm. um, you know, there's, there's a rich opportunity for new experiences here, but there are also things to be careful about. And right. um, Okay, so let, let's talk about uh, your um, most recent adventure, if I may say, the Agile Fluency. You talked yeah. about it a little bit. Um, so tell us more about the Agile Fluency. Um, you said you started with James Shore on this one. Um, I believe Martin Fowler wrote an article on that, if I'm not mistaken. Martin Fowler very graciously published the article that James and I wrote oh, okay. right. on his site. And, um, and we were thrilled when he made the offer to do that. Uh, we had worked on it for three or four years at that point, refining it, refining it, sharing it getting reviews, so on. And then when we said, we think it's ready, but do you think it's ready? And we sent it out to some of the folks that we respected the most. Martin was one of them. And one of the questions we asked was, if this article is ready, where should we publish it? Mm -hmm. And when he got back to us, he said, I think it's ready and I would like to publish it. And Mm -hmm. so we were ecstatic at that point (laughs) and so he published it for us in um, August of 2012 and we thought 
that was that. You know, we had these ideas, we wrote them down, and it, they got published, and we were ready to go on to other things. I was in the middle of um, writing the second edition of our liftoff book. Jim was, James was doing some other things, and we just kind of walked away from it. And then we started hearing people contacted us, or in various ways, we started hearing about folks who were using the model who had figured out for themselves how to apply it. And then we were, we were contacted by other folks, or in my case, I was working at a client and I told them about the model. It came up in conversation. And um, the, our client there, who was a, a VP of um, the technology area and a pretty large organization, he said, well, how do I know what, where, where my teams are? And, and what else can we learn about this? Because he got very intrigued by it. How, you know, how can I decide what, where, what zone my teams need to be in and, and so on. And so he stimulated us to think about what other tools did, did people need in order to, or what other supports did people need in order to be able to actually make use of the model to implement it. And, so that led us to develop some additional materials. And then, so then by early 2015, we decided, uh, gosh, we're spending so much time on this. This isn't just some little side effort at this point. Mm. <laughs> this is, this is uh, you know, taking over more of our lives than we had expected. Mm. And so at that point we formed, uh, we kind of formally made the Agile Fluency Project as a, um, as an organization, as a business, and and uh, and began looking at uh, how could we disseminate the things that we had created and our and our ideas more. And eventually, it it came that the best that that Jim James and I don't scale very well. I mean, we can only deal with a few clients in any mm -hmm. given year. And more and more people were asking us about this. And so we said, well, we can't be the only ones who are carrying this information. You know, we need to be, we need to share this as broadly as we possibly can. And mm -hmm. so that's when we began putting together workshops and training programs and supports for the people who'd been through our workshops and, and those kinds of things to, to help it, very experienced coaches who who seem to get it the best uh, help them uh, add the agile fluency suite now of materials to their toolbox so that they can uh, bring that out when it seems appropriate with for their clients mm -hmm. so that's what we're doing now mm -hmm. and and it it's really gratifying because it allows me to take the things that I've learned over really 30 to 40 years of coaching and consulting in this space uh, and related spaces to be able to share that with folks and, you know, help give other people a leg up in mm. some of the techniques and things that I've learned that particularly things about how do you get, how do you enter an organization? How do you talk to people to create the partnership with your mm -hmm. client and, and, help them reach the goals that they have set for themselves and help them realistically assess which of those things are possible and which aren't and where 
where can they get the outcome that where can they afford to get the outcomes they want and where does it take trade-offs that are just not possible for them right. and 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 have a more realistic assessment of of mm. what they can accomplish so if you want to describe this agile fluency model what would this be um i i know that it's not a maturity model so no yeah. <laughs> no it's it, well when we use the term fluency very deliberately um mm -hmm. and we use it in a similar way to people talk about uh to what the um, people who really study uh, languages will talk about uh, fluency with languages. Lay people, normal people, you run into somebody, they say, oh, they've been to Iran. And, um, and someone will say, well, how did you get along there? Were you able to, you know, how fluent in the language were you, right? And, but nobody really knows what that means, right? Because it was, it, they're really, when you think about language fluency, it's were you fluent enough to be a, a, an effective tourist? Were you able to get, get to, from your hotel to the bus station or what are those kinds of things that you wanted to do? Or were you able to go to a coffee shop and talk to anybody who came along and just have streaming conversations or were you able to teach at the university i mean those are right. very different fluencies according True. to the need you have for that language and what the insight that jim and i had was depending on the nature of the product and the nature of the business the flu the agile fluency that companies or it departments need from their teams is different depending on how what they're trying to accomplish mm -hmm. uh, in the in a very similar way and so we did some research and study and talked to a lot of people and discovered that we could identify sort of roughly four what we call zones of fluency mm -hmm. and each one of them each of the zones can stand on its own if it's the zone that you need, right? So the, the thing about the Agile Fluency model is it's not about maturity because we're not saying everybody needs to grow up in the same kind of way. What mm -hmm. it's more, I mean, we call it a path. It's more like a, lately we've been using the analogy of a bus, a bus zone. You know, you, you go to the, if you're on a bus, you go to the zone that the bus serves that has the stuff you want. You know, if you want to right. go downtown and, and get a building permit, you don't ride the bus all the way out to the suburbs to the big box stores. You know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you only go out there if you want to go in and buy something out of the big box stores. So, um, so it, it is that it is then, then the role of the coach and consultant and using the model is to talk it through and 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 explore it with their prospective client or their current client to to determine what zone is going to be right for each of their teams right. and then and then when they have a sense of where it is what zone would be the right zone would give them the right kind of benefits for for their product and and their customers and their needs then then you can decide 
well, what agile methods might be helpful there? What what kind of agile proficiencies? What what groups of skills did, would the teams need to be able to bring to bear in order to give that outcome? Right. And so it just and and so it's it's the fluency. It was what is what is the habitual routine way of working that this organization needs from these teams to be able to get the outcomes that they want? Right. And and so that's what we that's what we work with coaches to do to help them have those conversations. And then and then we did eventually developed a diagnostic so that people can tell well so where my teams are now. Because if you know where the teams are now, then you know what kinds of investments you can make that will help all the teams get to the place where you need them to be. And then, and not make just investments willy-nilly or follow some sort of prescribed, uh, you know, practice training for some right. methodology. Uh, make sure it's the it's the one that is really going to work for you. And maybe you've already maybe your teams have come already equipped with two thirds of the things to be effective in the zone you need them them to be fluent in, and they only need help with the other third of things. Mm. And so the diagnostic helps you figure that out. And then, and then the coach works with those leaders and develops an investment plan to mm -hmm. fill in that gap right. and, and help the teams get to the place that where mm -hmm. they can, they can be achieving what the organization wants them to achieve. Because that's what, I mean, that's what's satisfying for everybody, right? Is feeling successful at, at making sure that we're, we're performing and producing in the way that um that and meeting expectations right. and finding the best way to do that um i had the pleasure of uh, learning more about agile fluency when james shore was in toronto in person. right yeah he was yeah. there a few years ago yeah. yeah yeah um but for the folks that are um are new to agile fluency is there any um uh, tools available that they can practice you mentioned about the diagnostic tool is this uh, right. available online that they can use some some resources maybe that you can share with them well what what is online if you go to our website agilefluency.org um, you can um, follow the links it starts on the home page and we have a free ebook download which is it's the same as the article on Martin Fowler's website, but it's it's arranged in a way that's a little bit easier to read on mobile devices and things like that. And um, also it um, it's easier to share because it's a, a downloadable PDF. You can you can share it with other folks and and it's free. So you can dive into that, that we have several different pages on our website that have different kinds of information. We have a, a blog and we have a page that talks about the suite of materials, which at this point is the model, the diagnostic, and something we call our improvement cycle, and then what the possibilities are there. And then in order to gain access to some of the more um, so more nuanced tools like the diagnostic and so on, uh, that's, that's when we provide workshops. And mm -hmm. so people can come and take our workshops to learn to use those tools. And then they have a license to right. use those tools for um, a year. And mm -hmm. then we re people renew their licenses. And, and we have a very high 
uh, renewal rate for our licenses because people find it useful and they like being a part of the community that we've created. And it comes with the game as well, Agile Fluency Game too. Well, there is the Agile Fluency Game is available as well. It's uh, right now. It's a little bit on hold because it is it is an in person game. There's just yeah, there's sure. no other way to play the game but in yeah. person. If you've played it, you know you you yeah. know you need it's very tangible and and you need to be able to sit and talk with your teammates as you're playing the game uh, but we have a web, we have a page on our website about it and um, and it is a very powerful tool I am hoping that we can get back to the get to the place where uh, we can we aren't so constrained by social distancing that we can mm -hmm. use those kinds of tools again um, mm -hmm. because it has I know it's helped a lot of people I just put a blog post on our website today that is a guest post from Allison Pollard, who's talking about how she has used the Agile Fluency game to uh, help her clients in their Agile adoptions. Mm -hmm. So uh, yes, it is another tool and that's another thing that's available. But again, it you have to go through a workshop to yeah. get a license to yeah. <laughs> facilitate that game because it's a very, um, it's a very complex game and, and the facilitation of it is, uh, you have to, there are some things you really have to learn in order to be able to help people play the game. Other, right. The rules are a little challenging. Like a lot of Euro games, you know, the kind of role playing, we're all in it together. We got to get from here to there kind of games. Right. Um, they all have a lot of rules and a lot of tracking that you have right. to do and things like that. And, and that's part of what, that's part of the fun. Right. Um, and I think it's a very fun game. I right. like to play it. Mm -hmm. um, even now, but because I like to try different paths. So, well, what if I played it this way? What if I played it that way? What if you know? <laughs> yeah. so, um, I I enjoy a lot um, facilitating um, educational things with mm -hmm. games, and we run a one day um, open space in Toronto right. called Agile Games Canada around games. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So, I I just want to ask you about the game. How how much does it take to uh, design this game? Like, tell us. Uh, Oh my gosh, it is, um, it, I'm trying to remember, I think it was 2010 when Arlo Belshi and James Shore first started developing it, and then, or maybe it was, no, maybe it was a couple of years after that, but um, they started it. Um, right around the same time that Jim and I were writing our article and, and doing our research and they and it has been through um, years and years and years of play testing and then finally after we started the Agile Fluency project we turned it into um, an actual boxed set kind of right. game and so we've, we've had, had it available I think since 2016 or 2017 Mm. Um, where you could buy it as a box, but it took years and years of development, and um, mm. and it's still. I mean, there are still things, you know, mm. recommendations that we get that Jim has recorded somewhere on a little mm. thing. But mm. they are the ones who develop that game. I'm mm. a I'm a good facilitator of the game, mm. um, and, and I can teach people. Is. Yeah, I can teach people to facilitate the game, mm. but I was not involved in the. Um, mm. 
I mean, Maybe. you know, the fact that retrospectives show up there, I might have had some right. influence over that. Right. But I think right. it was just more my presence than so maybe I should have a, a chat with James about the game and the design yes. of the game. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 If you're interested in game design, he'd be yeah. a good person to talk yeah. to. So yeah. you mentioned retrospective and it uh, mm -hmm. brings me to the question that I always had in my mind. Would the Agile community look at you and Esther as the um, retrospective queens? Or, the, um, <laughs> or has anyone told you that kind of well, thing? There was a time, uh, I think it was probably 2004, um, we first, starting in 2002, we started having gatherings of, peop of people who um, were interested in retrospectives and who were looking at the possibilities of them. And we began calling it the Retrospective Facilitators Gathering, and it still mm -hmm. goes on today, uh, every year. So if anybody's interested in that, um, they can get in touch and I can tell them more about that. But um, in 2004, we were mapping kind of all the streams that retrospectives were going at that point and all the different places that it was happening. And uh, different people in the community were uh, being given different titles. And uh, in that, at that session, Esther and I were given the titles of retrospective goddesses. Okay. <laughs> I think someone else was the queen and king and someone else was, I, I think actually it might've been Linda Rising that was the queen and we were the goddesses or something. Okay. They, were, they were handing out, handing yeah. out uh, accolades pretty right. liberally right. at that point. Right. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, we we were the ones who uh, a number of folks had written articles uh, mm. about retrospectives and even about retrospectives using retrospectives in agile. A lot of times they were being called heartbeat retrospectives. Mm. And um, at that same meeting, uh, there were a number of folks who were saying, you know, what we really need is a book that explains retrospectives. And Esther and I just looked at each other and said, well, we could do that. We could write that. And so then over the next couple of years, we did. And the book came out in 2006. Right. And, yeah. um, and shortly before that, because by that time, by that time, we were doing retrospective sessions at conferences and, yeah. and, and things. And by that time, um, Scrum had kind of, the Scrum folks had kind of broadened their thinking about the th three meetings and decided to turn it into four meetings and add retrospectives to that. And, right. uh, and it sort of became part of the scrum canon. And then, um, and then also it, there's always been that kind of continuous improvement in all of the agile methods. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, so it, it just was a good fit. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's the same if you, um, I'm not sure if you have read a Klaus Leopold book about, um, not his newest one, but uh, um, I don't remember the exact title. It's a yellow book. He, in, <laughs> in his book, he's talking about uh, what is uh, the um, Kanban um, specific. Yeah. And he's talking about that retrospective should be there or should be. So it seems yeah. that continuous right. improvement somewhere right. or the other is, shall be there. Right. Right. Um, and it really, the point is really continuous. I mean, this is 
this is one of those things like we were talking about before. There are too many people who are ha calling everybody together in a meeting and calling it a retrospective so that they can check off on their list that they did a retrospective, but they aren't getting the benefit from it. They aren't getting a continuous improvement. And so the, the I mean, Leopold is right. We, everyone needs some form of continuous improvement process for their organization. And then, like I said earlier, Toyota, that's called the, the improvement kata, right. you know, and different, different uh, methodologies from different, uh, in the military, they call them lessons learned yeah. uh, or after action reviews, or, yeah. I mean, there, there are a lot of folks who, who understand that uh, an experience is not uh, worth much unless you learn something from it for when the next time you encounter a similar experience or yeah, improve exactly. the way you encounter the next similar experience. Right. Right. And, um, and that's what retrospectives are about. And so it's not, uh, it has grown so that it's the way we described was a, was an, a, a meeting, a short meeting kind of in between the demo and the planning for the next sprint or iteration that would happen on a, on a sprint, by sprint cadence or release by release cadence for a longer one. But the fact that sometimes now, like the mob, some of the mob programming people are doing multiple, very, very short retrospectives every day. Yeah. I think that's terrific. Mm -hmm. um, it, the, the point is, what are you doing for continuous improvement? And mm -hmm. that's the message that Esther and I were really trying to get across. And so, it, you know, in when whatever form you're doing that, hooray, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the name was Practical Canva for uh, Klaus's okay. book. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> you always need um, that second, 17 second delay, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Diana, would you, would you share with us any people that influence you or is an influencer in the industry that um, um, you oh, want to goodness. share with us? Oh my goodness. Um, there are so many people. I mean, I take very seriously the idea that we all stand on the shoulders of giants. I mean, there are so many folks who have contributed. Ward Cunningham, Joshua Karievsky, uh, Ron Jeffries, Martin Fowler. Uh, those, they were some of the first folks that I met in the, in the agile space. And they encouraged me to bring what I understood and, and had learned. Um, so, the, you know, those are folks that I'm very, very grateful for. I'm very grateful for Linda Rising and Yuta Eckstein and many of the um, women that I met early on who had been involved in the uh, uh, object-oriented community and in the patterns community, Rebecca Wurfsbrock, um, who also, you know, let me know that what, what I might have to contribute was also uh, useful and important to them. There's a book I read many, many years ago called Love is Letting Go of Fear by mm -hmm. a man named Gerald, Dr. Gerald Jumpowski. And that book shaped how I interact with people. Norman Kurth, uh, who wrote the Project Retrospectives book and was mm -hmm. a, a wonderful mentor and supporter um, was was very influential. I mean, I could just 
if I go year by year by year between mm -hmm. then and now, I mean, there, there are many folks that I'm leaving out that mm -hmm. I, 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 har I hesitate to even start a list like that because mm -hmm. there are just so many folks who have, who have influenced me over the years and who have shared their good ideas. And um, I just feel so fortunate to be uh, a part of a group that is so focused on being this gift economy. Where it's you know the the places that you get to go in the world really have a lot to do with what you're willing to contribute, and that just makes for a really rich community. We are very fortunate to have this community. I I am I'm I'm blessed. Yeah. Diana, is there anything else that uh, we wanted to touch base on, but we didn't? You want to add? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't think so. We've been going for an hour. Right, right. <laughs> and um, I can't, I, I think I'm, it's, it's the end of the day here for yeah. me. And I know it's the end of the day for you. And I think yeah. I'm pretty much out of ideas. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much for being on the show. Um, I'm going to ask you to send me those resources so that we can put it on the show notes. So for the people and maybe how to get in touch with you. And yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a true pleasure to having you on board. Well, you're welcome. It was, it was great. <laughs>